Hey, this is Rich Wilkerson. I'm the pastor of VU Church in Miami, Florida, and this is our podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out today. I hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. All right, well, today we are in part two of our collection entitled Changes. Someone say, it's time to make a change. And we are studying the gospel of Mark. And really, if you joined us last week, what you would know is that we're not just studying Mark for a portion of time. Really, we're studying Mark for the next six months. And our first collection is this collection entitled Changes. Last week, I talked to you from the subject, An Invitation to Change. But today, I want to preach to you from the subject, The Cost of Change. The Cost of Change. And if you've got a Bible, I want you to reach for it right now. All of our VU friends and family, grab a notepad. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be studying eight verses from the Gospel of Mark We're really committing ourselves to Bible study as we kick off 2021. And today, our teaching comes from these eight verses, the cost of change. I had sort of a funny experience take place over the Christmas holidays. I was doing um, some Christmas shopping, and I was in a store shopping for my wife, who loves me very much. And I was in this store, it was kind of a boutique store, and I'm looking around at these different items, clothing items. And as I was looking at these different items, um, the thing that kind of I, I noticed quickly was that there wasn't um, any price tags on the items. Some of you already know where this is going. Um, well, your boy is ignorant. Um, I'm shopping. I'm like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. This is cool. There's, there's no price tags. And so I, like, I get a stack of stuff, and I'm like, oh, I'm about to, about to make my wife proud. You know, I'm going to wrap her up some gifts this Christmas. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I go to the cash register and I bring all these items that don't have any price tags on them. And she begins to ring up item after item. And as she's ringing them up, the price shows up. And wow, um, now I know why they didn't put the price tags on the items. How many know if there's no price tags on the items, you're in deep water, okay? This is going to be some expensive stuff. She literally rang up all of these items, and I, I hate to say it, but um, I was at the cash register, and I was like, um, I don't, I don't think we need all of these items. Have you ever done this before? You actually have to take certain items. You're like, I'm going to put this back. I'm, a, I'm actually going to I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to pray about these items. I had to take some items back because I wasn't willing or ready to pay the price of what the items cost. And I was just thinking about that today because this is the truth is that so many of us say that we want to change, but many of us are unwilling to pay the price to change. As we kicked off last week, we're talking about this idea of changes in the month of January. And really all of change comes from not focusing on what you can't control. It comes from focusing on what you can control. And today, as we get into our study, I want to lean into this idea that all of change has a price tag attached to it. That today, each and every one of us, we have to count the cost. Do we actually want to change? Are we willing to pay the price for change? Because what you will discover about Jesus in his teaching is that Jesus, over and over again, has a bold, blatant message he makes it very, very clear that following him comes with an extreme cost. He says things like, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. One time Jesus says, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Let's just say Jesus did not sugarcoat his message. He wanted you to understand that yes, salvation is free, but it is not cheap. And change will always have a cost attached to it. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, remember, we finished in our reading of Mark chapter 1. We saw this beautiful, epic moment. It was the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, he, he, he goes under the waters, and as he comes up out of the waters, a voice from heaven speaks out, This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased. And really what we understand as we begin to read Mark chapter one is that we see that as Mark is writing his gospel, he in many ways is mimicking the Genesis account. For at the very beginning of creation of the world, we see the triune God present. 
We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see God who's in heaven. We see the word of God, which is creating. And then we also see the spirit, the scripture says, hovering over the waters like a dove. What's powerful about Mark's presentation of Jesus's baptism is he's mimicking the same epic moment as creation. For at Jesus's baptism, we hear the voice of God, which is the father. We see the word of God, which is the son. And we also see this dove hovering down upon Jesus, which is the spirit of God. What Mark is trying to say to all of us, and we learned this last week, is that the baptism of Jesus is just as epic as the creation of the world. For in Jesus, there is a brand new creation at hand. That because of Jesus today, you can change. You can become who you've been called to become. Because of Jesus, you can have a free relationship with God through the Son, whose name is Jesus. And what's powerful as we, as we step into our reading today is this moment where Jesus is baptized, where the heavens open up. It is this special, beautiful moment. But now as we get into our reading, what we're going to quickly discover is the beauty of divinity is now quickly followed by the brutality of humanity. For as this voice speaks, this is my son, what God was saying is that Jesus is not just a man, he is God in the flesh. So now we see this special moment, which is this divine moment, but now it's going to be followed by this brutal human moment. For God's son is about to meet God's adversary. Today, as we speak about the cost of change, I want to draw your attention to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Watch what takes place. I want to give you three truths today when it comes to this idea, the price, the cost to change. At once, the Spirit sent him. Everyone say, at once. once. So we're coming out of the baptism, and now at once, the Spirit sent him. Who's him? Jesus. Sent Jesus out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days. Everyone say 40 days. Being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended to him. Truth number one, when it comes to the cost of change, here's the truth. Public declaration will always face private temptation. I I want you to see this today because honestly, what just took place is the heavens opened up. It's this awesome victory public moment. Jesus is God in the flesh. The spirit descends upon him in power, but now watch that same spirit that descended upon him in power is now sending him out into the desert. Woo! The same spirit that came upon him in power is the same spirit that's leading him into the wilderness. It's funny, right? Because a lot of times in church we say, hey, be led by the spirit. Hey, brother, are you led by the spirit? Just want to be led by the spirit. And most of us think that when we're led by the Spirit, the Spirit's going to lead us to breakthrough. The Spirit's going to lead us to success. The Spirit's going to lead us to healing. The Spirit's going to lead us to prosperity. I believe He does lead us to those places. But I also wonder today, those of you that are in this place that are saying, I want to change. I want to grow. I wonder, will you let the Spirit lead you into the wilderness? Will you obey the spirit when he sends you into the desert? Woo, I don't know about you, but there's something about the desert. There's something about the wilderness that all of us must experience on the faith journey. It's only in the desert where you can truly begin to appreciate water. The desert is a place that makes us desperate. You know, fasting in many ways can feel like a desert experience. But it's this desperation that we all desperately need, that we all must desperately learn to cling to God. Why? Because it's desperation for God that creates revelation about God. I want to say it this way. The wilderness is not a great place to build a home. Oh, but friends, it is a great place to build your faith. Is there anybody out there who wants to grow, who wants to change? If you want to change, you have to be willing to have these wilderness experiences with your maker. I just just want you to see this. It goes from this epic moment. 
ah, heavens open up, the voice of Mufasa speaks out, this is my son whom I love and well pleased. And then immediately, notice, remember, Jesus in action, Mark's gospel is all about action, at once. It's like he, he doesn't even want you to linger in the celebration very long. At once, we saw the spirit descend upon him like a dove in power, and then at once, the same spirit leads him into the desert. Why is he being led into the desert? He's being led into the desert to be tempted by Satan. This is, this is big. He, he's going to the desert to actually be tempted by Satan. And all of us on the journey of faith will have to go through these experiences where we feel like we're in the wilderness, where we feel like we're in the desert. But the desert is meant to make you desperate for God. But what happens to so many of us is that in the wilderness and in the desert, that's when we face temptation. I'm just telling you, if you want to change, you're going to have to learn how to pass the test of temptation. I just want you to catch this because some of us, we don't know this truth. This public declaration, this aha moment is followed with Jesus facing private temptation. Some of us in this room and some of us that are watching right now on YouTube, if you could get this revelation, you would find yourselves being more content on the faith journey. Because so many of you, you're like, I don't get it. It's like I make this public declaration, I'm a new creation in Christ. But as the moment I make that declaration, it's all of a sudden now I'm facing deeper, greater, bigger, intense temptation. Why is that? It's because many times our public victories are followed by our greatest private attacks. People don't know this. People don't understand this. It's like last week we had a great in-person gathering at Jungle Island. I don't know if anyone's brought you this report, but yesterday or last Sunday at Jungle Island, day seven of our prayer journey, we saw three different services full of people. But the best part of last Sunday is that 70 people made a decision to get water baptized. Oh, come on. I need a praise break right there. I'm just like, I've been missing that since last year. 70 people, what'd they do? 70 people made a public declaration. I'm following Jesus. But you know what would be a really fun case study is to get all 70 of those people in the studio on this Sunday and interview them one by one. I got a good feeling that if you ask those 70 people, hey, that was awesome. We all celebrated you. We all danced. We all jumped. We all congratulated you. What was Monday like? I'm almost guarantee you that if you talk to those 70 people, most of them felt like they had a week from hell. But Rich, I don't, I don't understand why. It's because when I make a public declaration, I will now have to face private temptation. But Rich, I don't understand why. I'll tell you why. It's because you went from a trend to becoming a threat. You went from being a spectator to becoming a participator. Before you were just in the stands. But baby, now you're on the field. You do know that on the sidelines, you don't get tackled. <laughs> but the moment you step into the game, you are bound to take a lick or two. I want to remind you that some people, 70 to be exact, got in the game last week. Is there anybody out there that would say, I want to be in the game. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to become. I'm telling you what. You will never, ever change if you can't afford to stop feeding your flesh. Yo, I want abs, but you also want pizza. I want a promotion, but you also want to keep sleeping in. I want a spouse who's committed. I know, but you also want to keep cheating. I want authority, but you also want no accountability. Every one of us wanting to change is not enough. Being willing to resist temptation on the journey is the only way that you will continue to become. And it's just a powerful concept, right? Because once again, what we see here in Mark's gospel is Mark is drafting off the Genesis story. 
So he starts with the triune God creating, and then we see the triune God shows up there for Jesus to say that Jesus is divine. Remember, he has two thesis points that he's making, that he's Messiah, he came to save, but he's also God. But he continues in this same flow. Because you'll remember as God creates the heavens and the earth, remember God creates man. Remember he says, let us make man in our image. It's the triune God that creates man and woman. And if you can remember the story of Adam and Eve, they're the very first people on the earth according to God's word. And Adam and Eve are put in this beautiful plush garden. And they're in this garden And there's really only one rule and one boundary in the garden. There's this tree. It's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they're forbidden to eat any of the fruit from that tree. But remember what happens. Jesus is known as the second Adam. Like the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus is now in the wilderness being tempted. But Adam, the first Adam, he too was tempted by Satan himself. By the way, I just want to make this little FYI. A lot of people give um, themselves too much credit. You say, what do you mean? Oh man, the devil's messing with me. Let me just be honest with you. The devil is not omnipresent. He's not like Jesus. He's not like God. He's everywhere. So you might be under spiritual attack, but the idea that the devil himself is tempting you could be, just could be slightly arrogant. You might be dealing with some sort of demonic force. I don't know, some legion, Balthazar. I don't know his name. But Satan in the flesh tempts Adam and he tempts Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to put myself in either one of those men's categories. Just good pastoral teaching. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and the serpent begins to tempt Adam and Eve. How does the serpent tempt Adam and Eve? He does it one way. He gets them to question the authority of God. How does he do it? He asks a question, did God really say not to eat from this tree? So Rich, why are you bringing that up? I'm bringing that up because flash forward to Jesus, the second Adam, the scripture says that he is out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. So I just want you to see there's similarities, but there's major differences. Adam and Eve are in a plush garden, Eden, in most cases, is seen to be a type of heaven. So almost picture paradise on earth. That's what they're living in. The scripture makes it very clear. They're naked and no shame, okay? So they're, they're living a good life. They're living in heaven on earth and they're naked. Hey, some of you are like, I dream of those days. It will come to pass in heaven. They're in, and then this, they, they, they give in to the temptation. Jesus is similar, but much, much different. He is in a desert. The scripture, Mark makes it very clear with wild animals. Remember, at the time of Mark's writing, Christians are being fed to wild animals. Now they're seeing one who's hanging out with no harm with wild animals, not being fed to them, but having dominion over them. And here's Jesus in the desert. So just get the picture. Not Eden, in the desert. Doesn't have a spouse. He's all alone. Doesn't have a paradise. Has a wilderness. And for 40 days, he, by the way, he's fasting. Day 14 of fasting. First five days of 21 days, I did a liquid juice fast. Friends, I don't know, but like I think about Jesus. The desert's hot. He's hungry. Hot and hungry always equals hangry. (laughs) Dude, I'm five days in and I I barely have patience for my loved ones let alone the devil who's right there in the flesh tempting me. This is a struggle. This is the situation that Jesus is in. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he resists the temptation of Satan himself. It's important that you see that it's 40 days and 40 nights because once again, this is drafting off of the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites, they were set free from bondage from the Egyptians and they were headed to the promised land, aka their destiny. And what happens? As they step out into the desert, the wilderness, what do they do? They disobey God. And because they disobey God, if you know the story, what was meant to be a few days journey turned into 40 years of wandering. Can I say it this way? Disobedience is the best way to delay your destiny. Disobedience is the best way to delay your destiny. I wonder how many of us today that are watching this stream, 
The reason why you haven't changed, the reason why you have stopped becoming, the reason why you continue to wander is because you continue to give in to temptation. You continue to disobey God's word. And because of it, it's not that you don't have a destiny, it's that your destiny is delayed. Adam failed the test in the garden. And just in case you're upset with Adam, please understand that every human being since Adam has failed the same test. Oh, but thank God for Mark's gospel. Thank God that there is a second Adam that Paul says, his name is Jesus Christ. And where we failed, he succeeded. Where we gave in, he stood strong. Where the first Adam could never make it, oh, the second Adam, he paid the price and he stood the test of temptation. Oh, friend, you might be a product of your past, but you don't have to be a prisoner of it any longer. You have been set free to walk in freedom. It's time to stop wandering. It's time to change completely in who he's called you to be. But you better learn that public declaration will always face private temptation. And I'm going to have to conquer the test of temptation if I'm going to see the full result of what God has for my life. It's amazing, right? Because that Garden of Eden story where all of humanity now reaped the consequence of man's disobedience. Anyone thankful for the second garden? <laughs> That from Eden to Gethsemane, that's the garden that Jesus was in before he went and paid the ultimate price. And from the garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? He says, Father, my flesh is weak. I'm prone to temptation. I'm prone to give in to my flesh. Oh, but Father, my spirit is willing. One man's disobedience led to our death, but because of one man's obedience it leads to life and life more abundantly. Here's the thing with temptation. Temptation always exposes intentions. It it exposes intentions. Um, I don't know about you, but the scripture is very clear. We're supposed to flee temptation. I don't want to live my life seeing how close I can get (laughs) to temptation. It's all the way, I don't want to see how close I can get to the line I actually want to see how far away I can run from the line. You ever meet people? Um, I meet some people that they, they, they're so committed to the letter of the law that they miss the spirit of God. Remember, the spirit led him to the desert. The spirit did not tempt him. The spirit led him to a place where he would be tempted by the devil. Very, very important that you understand. God does not tempt people. God allows us to walk into situations that the tempting can produce a deeper strength, a deeper desperation. But I meet some people that read God's word and they're, they're, like they're reading it, they're like looking for loopholes. And what are they doing? They're doing exactly what the serpent did to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? In fact, Mark's gospel does not tell us the temptation that Jesus went through, but Luke's gospel does. Luke chapter four, as you read it, you will see the three different temptations that Jesus went through. And in one of those temptations, the devil actually comes to Jesus and he actually quotes God's word to him. Let me just tell you something. It's not just enough to know the word. You have to know the context of the word. And how many know you can't quote the word if you don't know the word? (laughs) And Jesus gives him back context to the word and it's God's word which operates as an authority to give him strength and power not to give into temptation. We are living in a culture right now that is saying, did God really say that? And some of you, you're calling yourselves believers and you're saying, did God really say that? And we're looking at God's word like it's some type of contract. But I want to remind you, God's word is not a contract that's meant to make your life miserable. God's word is a love letter that's meant to make your life meaningful. It's the cost of change. And if you're going to change, you're going to have to be willing to pay the price And the price tag is, I want to change, but can my flesh afford resisting? I need to resist in 2021. That's what we're doing with 21 days of prayer and fasting. It's a time to be consecrated unto the Lord. God, I want to be clean and empty that you might use me. 
and that I might develop into the person you've called me to be. Let's continue in our study. Mark chapter one, verse 14, after John was put in prison, I just wanna help everyone that's watching online that's never done Bible study before. This is how we're reading God's word in 2021. We're going verse by verse and we're pulling out truths. We're discovering what the text says, but also what does the text say to us in 2021? So after John was put in prison, remember John the Baptist was out in the desert preparing the way. Now, how many know this, that as he was out there preparing the way, it led him to a prison cell where he was ultimately decapitated. It's amazing how there's a lot of Christianity out there right now that says, I will be a Christian as long as it leads to my success. Well, yo, if you're going to follow Jesus, it ended up on a cross for Jesus. It ended up in a prison cell for John the Baptist with his head cut off. It doesn't always lead to the life that you were thinking that you wanted, but it always leads to the life that you needed. And after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, watch this, proclaiming the good news. This is another word for preaching the good news. What's the good news? Another word for good news is gospel. We learned that last week. That, that, that's why Mark is writing. It's a proclamation. It's a preach. It's a sermon about the good news of God. Here's Jesus' words now. Red letters, hopefully, if you got that Bible. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Truth number two around the cost of change. Today is the most valuable thing you have to give. Just got to remind some people. You see, price is what you pay. Value is what you get. The famous poet Oscar Wilde, he said it this way, these days, everyone knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. See, the greatest thing that you have to give is today. And if you want to know what the cost of change is, it is the price of today. It's right now. It's, it's, it's this moment. Right now, God wants to do something in your life. Right now, God wants to bring about change. Today is the day of change. And here's the truth. Change happens in a moment. It's results that require time. I just think there's so many people that are living today, especially in 2021, and we spend more time on our excuses than we do on execution. We're just full of excuses, just full of reasons as to why we can't start now. Oh man, I'm gonna start tomorrow. Bro, I, I failed yesterday. Some of you, you started the fast and because you failed three days in, you just gave up on the rest of the 18 days. No, no, no. Start today, begin again. Some of us, we glorify the someday. Well, someday I'm gonna finally get my life in order and someday I'm gonna really follow God wholeheartedly and someday I'll become the person that God's called me to. Some of us aren't focused on the someday's, we're, we're focused on, on, on back in the day. Back in the day when it was really good and back in the day when I used to serve at church and back on the day when I was in a crew and back in the day when I had leadership and back in the day when I was really passionate about my job and back in the day when I was going to the gym and you're giving up the power of this moment. You're failing in realizing that the most valuable thing that you have is today. And if you wanna know the cost of change, it is the price of today. It's amazing. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Let's just look at the scripture one more time because I just want to do this Bible study with you. Watch this. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee and he's proclaiming, he's preaching the gospel. Remember, Jesus comes not with bad news. He comes with good news. Tell that to Fox News. Tell that to CNN. Tell that to every person who's shaking in their boots right now. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is good news that we have an eternal life that's promised to us. Get your hopes up. Proclaiming the good news of God. Now watch this. This is very important. If you're taking notes, please understand this. This is the first time that Jesus' words are going to be recorded in the Gospel of Mark. So we did a whole sermon last week. We did a whole study, and we haven't heard Jesus speak. These are the first words of Jesus. Here they come. Jesus, the first words. The time has come. Everyone said the time has come. He said the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is saying, hey, the time is right now. Today is here. 
And if you want to change, it starts right now. Now, what's amazing is that Mark writes this letter or this gospel in the Greek language. And I love the Greek language because the Greek language, um, well, they're, they're more descriptive than the English language. For instance, when you study the word love in English, how many know we got one word, love? I love my dog. And I love my wife. Okay, hold on. But which one? That's the same word. The Greek language has four words for love. Words like storge, which is a family type of love. Words like phileo, which is a friendship love. Words like eros, which is an erotic kind of love. Hello, Don Cherie. Agape, which is an unconditional love. In fact, it's really important to note that when the Bible says God is love, it doesn't say God is storge. It doesn't say God is eros. It says God is agape. What's important about the Greek language is that when it comes to the word time, they have two words. The first word is the word that you're probably most familiar with, which is the word chronos, chronos. This is where we get words like chronological. And so honestly, the Greeks use this word for the quantitative side of time, the minute by minute, the day by day, the year by year, time keeps passing, time keeps coming. And of course, as Jesus says, the time has come, of course, he means right now in the moment. Of course, he's alluding to this word chronos. But when Mark writes this book, he doesn't use the word chronos. Instead, he uses the word kairos. This is the second word for time, and this word measures not the quantitative side of time, but rather the qualitative side of time. It measures moments. How many know that life is not measured in minutes? Life is truly measured in moments. It's honestly over and over again, it's not the minutes that we are going through, but rather it's the moments that shape us. And this word kairos, it speaks to this idea that at this moment, this is a defining moment, that all the moments after this moment are different because of this moment. And it's hard in the English language to really break this down. I guess the best way I could break it down for you would be two words that you're familiar with that many times we mix up, which would be the word historical and historic. I don't know if you've ever watched like a newscaster and they're like, this is a historical moment. Well, it's like, yeah, of course. Every moment is a historical moment. Many times what they mean is it's a historic moment. Today is it's a historical moment. This day is happening. But I got a feeling that nobody's going to write a book about this day of January as we preached a message called The Cost of Change. It's a historical moment, but it's most likely not for all of us a historic moment. It could be a historic moment for some. But how many know the day that my son Wyatt Wesley was born? Yes, it was historical, January 23rd, 2018. But it was also historic in the Wilkerson house. Because after that boy gave, came, no other day that followed ever looked the same. That moment defined all of the other moments. It's called a Kairos moment. And all throughout the scriptures, there are these chirotic moments right? Like for instance, the most chirotic moment of all is the birth of Jesus. It's not just a chirotic moment for you and for me, but it's for all of humanity. You can't tell time without the birth of Jesus. Our entire calendar system, BC and AD, that moment changed all of the other moments. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just a Kronos moment, it was a Kairos moment. That's where we had our sins paid. His resurrection from the grave, not just a Kronos moment, not just a historical moment, but a Kairos, a, a, a historic moment that through his resurrection, everything we believe becomes true and it becomes real. And friends, the same is true for you and the same is true for me. Here comes Jesus and the first words out of his mouth is the Kairos has come. This moment right now, today, this hour, this moment, repent, believe the kingdom of God is near. He was saying, if you put your belief in me today, this moment is going to define all of the other moments. I think so many of us, we get so confused when it comes to change. 
keep believing that, you know what? I'm going to change, but I'm going to start tomorrow. Isn't it funny? Yesterday, you said today. Last year, remember last year? I did a whole collection called Becoming. You're like, yeah. But last year, you said this year. Repent. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, turn, change, shift. The good news is at hand. I don't know what you need to change. I'm going to keep preaching each week. I don't know what you need to change. Lose weight. Start the job. Quit the job. Bro, ask her out. Write the book for heaven's sake. Start the business. Make the album. Be content. Stop complaining. I don't know what you need to do. All I know is you need to start today. Today is the day of salvation. Salvation is not a tomorrow thing. It's not a yesterday thing. It's a right now type of thing. And you want to say, what's the cost of change? The cost of change is the price of today. 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 This can be a Kairos moment for you. You don't have to wait for somebody else. Jesus, he's here and he says, I'm here right now. This Kairos moment can change you forever. It might look like an ordinary day to everybody else, but this might be the most extraordinary day of your entire history. Not only is it historical, it is historic because you finally turned to Jesus. The cost of change. Public declaration will face private temptation. Can you afford to stop feeding your flesh? Today is the most valuable thing that you have to give. Tomorrow is not promised. Life is but a vapor. It's here one day and it is gone the next. Lastly, as we get ready to close today, Mark chapter one, verse 16, our last four verses, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come, Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men at once. Everyone say at once. Here's Mark. This is typical language all throughout. Suddenly, immediately, at once. At once. He's stressing the immediacy of the decision. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired men and followed him. The cost of change. Truth number three, loyalty over everything. Jesus has been baptized. He's not just man. He's God in the flesh. He's now been tempted in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. He proves that he is the second Adam. He proves that his obedience can lead to our life not like the Israelites who wandered for 40 years out of disobedience. No, it was a 40-day journey in and out. And now he's stepping into his public ministry and he's saying the time to change is right now. Quit putting it off. It's right now. Today is all you got. But here now he walks beside the Sea of Galilee and he begins to call his very first disciples. Understand, believers believe, but disciples do. And he's calling his disciples. I think it's important that we get some context once again around what's taking place. The Sea of Galilee, it's much more like a lake. It's 13 miles long, seven miles wide. But what many people don't understand about the Sea of Galilee is that the Sea of Galilee was one of the most productive bodies of water in the ancient world for fishing. And what we see about Jesus is Jesus is going out and he's doing something that's very peculiar. It doesn't seem peculiar to you and I because we just know this text and we've read it since we were kids. It's a famous text. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. But we got to understand it from the ancient writings because the idea that Jesus is calling disciples, don't get too confused with that word. Disciple simply means pupil of a tutor or a teacher. Maybe a better word or a word that you might be more comfortable with is an apprentice. I want to be an apprentice of Jesus. I'm learning the ways of Jesus. I'm wanting to walk like Jesus and think like Jesus and talk like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to do what Jesus yeah. did. I'm his apprentice. 
And many times we think this word disciple, like, because we know about the 12 disciples, also known as the 12 apostles, we think that, oh, that's just some high elite group that we could never be like. The apostles, you must understand, are different from the disciples. There's 12 disciples and 12 apostles, but Jesus had something like 70 disciples on the earth. And not only do you have 70 disciples, he invites you and I to be his disciple. That was his great commission. Go out into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in the Father and the Son, and make disciples. Not make believers, make disciples. But here on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, he goes and recruits his students. It's interesting because rabbis of that time period, they did not pick their pupils. Their pupils picked them. It's much like the university system today. Like universities don't always go and just pick people. Most of the time we apply to the university that we want to go to. But Jesus once again is showing the difference between his authority that unlike regular rabbis, you can't have a relationship with Jesus unless you, he calls you to himself. If you're here today, if you're watching, I believe it's he's calling, he's, he's drawing you in, he's, he's wooing you. But as Jesus walks beside this Sea of Galilee, this, this incredible, productive body of water, Josephus, the ancient scholar who was a historian, wrote in his writings that in the year 65, when Rome invaded Palestine, that they commandeered some 250 boats off of the Sea of Galilee meaning they seized just 250 on the Sea of Galilee. Like that, there could have been so many more. What I want you to understand is that the Sea of Galilee was a big business. They talk about it from a historical place that there was all sorts of different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. So a lot of those fish were exported to other nations around the world. You say, Rich, why are you telling me this? I'm telling you this because a lot of us have this picture of Peter and James and John and we think they've got a little, you know, cast in rod and they're on the canal over there and they're just trying to get enough trout for the night so they can feed their little family. Most likely that is not an accurate picture of the disciples. Most likely these were lucrative businessmen. Most likely these were men like the sons of Zebedee, that this was the family business. In the ancient world, we live in America and we're so proud of our individuality and we're so big on our individual rights and our own responsibility. But in the ancient world, it was a communal world. And your identity was found from your family, not in just who you are, but here comes Jesus. And he walks over to these men that are in the middle of their career, in the middle of their identity with their family. And he walks upon the scene. He doesn't wait for them to pick him. He picks them. And he says, come follow me. And I'm going to teach you how to really fish. You're not going to fish for, for fish. You're going, you're going to fish for men. And the scripture says, at once they left their nets and they followed him. Immediately they left. See, Jesus is looking for loyalty out of disciples. Loyalty over everything. Here's what I know about loyalty. Loyalty is proved in what you're willing to lose, not in what you're hoping to gain. I give it up. You can have it all. See, if you're going to move from a career to a calling and you want to know what the cost of that is, the cost of that is everything. It's everything. It'll cost you everything and so I will leave my nets and I will leave my family and I will leave my position I will leave my business all with one hope which is to simply follow you I'm loyal to you see Jesus he spoke about this cost in a very brash kind of way Luke chapter 14 Jesus he's speaking to a large crowd and he wants to make sure that we understand the cost of what it looks like to change and become a disciple in and out and large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children his brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple Maybe this is the first time you've seen the scripture and it's kind of freaking you out. Whoa, 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 whoa. A little confused here. Um, what, you're saying to follow Jesus, I gotta hate mom and dad? What's up with that? Rich, isn't that a contradiction? 
Don't I read in most of the scriptures that Jesus calls us to radical love of other people? In fact, doesn't the scripture even say not to hate our enemies? So if we're not allowed to hate our enemies, how on earth can we start with hating mom and dad? <laughs> I love what Tim Keller writes about this text and I want it to sink into your heart today. Jesus is not calling us to hate actively. He's calling us to hate comparatively. You wanna know what loyalty to Jesus looks like? It looks like following him and loving him with such diligence, with such a spirit of endurance, with such a great, great following and desire to be like him that every other earthly attachment in your life compared to that love looks like hate. He's not calling you to hate mom and dad. He's saying, if need be, if you gotta throw your nets to the side, if you gotta leave the career, if you gotta leave the business, if I call you, will you follow me? Because if you wanna know the cost of change, it's that loyalty over everything. It's not hating actively, it's, it's hating comparatively. Can you imagine the sons of Zebedee Hey, Dad, we got to go with him right now. They left their nets and they left their father with hired hands because they were saying that we so desperately want to change. We so desperately want to follow Jesus. We will do whatever it is to be like him. See, there's a, there's a thinking that has shown up all over the body of Christ and it's, Jesus, I will follow you if. Jesus, I'll follow you if it makes me successful. Jesus, I'll follow you if I can be famous. And Jesus, I will follow you if I'm wealthy. And Jesus, I will follow you if I get the desires of my heart. But I'm trying to tell you that Jesus will not be a means to your end. He must be the goal in and of himself. He must be the finish line. He must be the prize. He wants your only desire to be him and only him. I was... I was at a wedding yesterday for two incredible people in our church, Andrew Kalor and Justine Gonzalez. I got to perform their wedding, which is always a great privilege to be there on a day of people's holy matrimony as they go public with their love for one another. And it was a special moment. But after the wedding, they asked us to take some pictures. My wife and I, along with one of our other friends, take a picture with Andrew and Justine. And they got, they got Justine all put together and they got her gown all laid out. And then one by one, they asked us to come and stand next to her in the picture. As we were standing in the picture, trying to get the picture in frame, many different times they would say, Don Shree, can you turn? Rich, can you maneuver? Hey, hey, Sean and Courtney, can you come in a little bit closer? What they were doing is they were saying that you guys are going to revolve around the bride. The bride is not going to pivot and adjust for you. And I want to encourage some people today, the cost of change, is I'm not asking God to revolve around my life. I'm not asking God to orbit around my dreams, but instead I am putting Christ at the center and I am orbiting my life around Him. I'm saying, God, I wanna be in frame with you where your position is where I'll stand. It's the cost of change. It's the cost of change. You say, what does that change look like? Well, Jesus, he speaks so clearly about this cost. Chapter 14, verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace in the same way. Someone say in the same way. Any of you who does not give up everything, someone say everything. He has cannot be my disciple. Loyalty over everything. Last week, we had the invitation to change, and this week, it's the cost of change. Public declaration, well, it's going to have to face private temptation. 
Today is the most valuable thing you have to give and it's loyalty over everything. Following Jesus is not a part of your life. It is your life. And you're invited into that journey. Today, we're taking some time in all of our services to celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's many different things that we could point out about his life, the attributes, the characteristics. But I think there's one thing that nobody can deny. And that is when it came to the cause that Dr. King was living for, which was to have true race reconciliation and true peace and true unity and rights for all, regardless of their color of skin. This cause was not just something that Dr. King talked about, but rather this cause was something that Dr. King was willing to lay his life down. For he was assassinated before he ever saw that dream come to pass. But I believe even in his death, that dream continues to unfold. That his change that he so desired, it cost him absolutely everything. And today, as we think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the change that he wants to birth inside of you, oh, I hope you understand today that you can change not from your own willpower. Now, you don't have enough willpower. The reason why you're able to change and the reason why you're able to become is when you simply say, God, I surrender to who you are once and for all. I surrender to your plan. I give up my dreams to pick up your dreams. I give up my plans to pick up your plans. Today, God, I lift up my hands and I believe that you have something good in store for me. And Lord, I leave this career behind to pick up a calling that I will follow you wherever you lead me. If you call me to the wilderness, I'll go. If you take me to the desert, I'll go. I'll follow you through the valley and I will follow you to the mountaintop. God, wherever you go, I will go. Come on, if you believe it today, come on, lift your hands. Come on, lift your voice. Well, thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, consider rating it and even sharing it with friends. It helps so much. For more content from VU and to connect with us, go to vuchurch.com. We love you. The best is yet to come.